Welcome everyone back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on America, China, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Michael Oslin, a fellow at Hoover. Usually I'm joined by my partner and co-host, John Yu, a visiting fellow at Hoover and professor of law at UC Berkeley. But unfortunately, as many of you longtime listeners know, John is still on the search for the perfect croissant now that his favorite French bakery in Berkeley has closed. And John is not with us today. He's out there on the streets braving the harsh California winter in order to try to find his croissant. But never fear, we are here and we are thrilled to be joined today. And I say we because I'm including John. I know he's he's thrilled if he's listening out there. He is. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined today by Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington, D.C., where I am located as well. Uh, so Jude and I are going to have a conversation on what's going on in China. This is really actually, for those of you who really want to learn some serious Chinese politics, get out a notepad, get a pen. This is going to be China 103. This isn't going to be beginning stuff, but it's really going to be some in-depth look at how uh, the top leadership works in China today. Uh, so before we get started, let me introduce Jude. Uh, Jude, as I mentioned, uh, holds the prestigious Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. Previously, he was the Engagement Director at the Conference Board's China Center for Economics and Business in Beijing, where he researched China's political environment, uh, focusing on the workings of the Communist Party. Uh, prior to working at the Conference Board, he was the Assistant Director of the 21st Century China Center out in California at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, he's written widely for Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. Uh, most importantly, perhaps, he has a book from Oxford University Press last year, China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong. So if you have not pick that up, China's New Red Guards, please do. Jude, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you very much, Misha. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, we are, uh, again, I'm speaking for John, but we are both really thrilled to be here. And John is, he, he sends his apologies. Something called him away at the last minute. He really uh, wanted to be here because he and I have spent the past year and a half talking a lot about uh, China's role in the world, China's role with the United States, um, and, and some, of course, on the workings of, of politics in China, but not as much as we really wanted to. And so we're really happy to have you here uh, to, to uh, honestly, I'm, I'm looking at it as a tutorial. Um, but there's some news that can kick off this, uh, this masterclass in Chinese politics, and that is there's something happening uh, this week in China. Uh, it's called the Fifth Plenum. Um, what is a plenum? What happened to one through four? Why are we on five? What does it mean? Why should anyone pay attention? I mean, we've got an election here next week. Everyone's focused on it, but there's really important political meetings going on in Beijing today, this week. What's a plenum? Uh, what's it going to do? And, and how does it affect uh, how the United States is going to deal with China? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate um, you buttering me up. I, I should say just at the outset that for those of us who focus on Chinese domestic politics and the Communist Party, um, it, it really, um, this is a muscle that, that the United States has really let atrophy, this real granular understanding of Leninist 
um, communist parties, how they operate, how they're structured, what their strengths, what their weaknesses are. And even just in the China field, uh, after, the, um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but really when throughout the 1990s, as China was you know, looking to exceed into the WTO and, and through the 2000s, you saw a drop off in focus on these um, the, the sort of Pekingology uh, approach here. And now, of course, I think starting with Xi Jinping's uh, rise to power in 2012, you're seeing a bit of a, a resurgence, uh, a restocking of the pipeline. But this is one area where, where I would say, myself included, we just know the vast, you know, sort of vistas of, of knowledge we don't have about real basic, basic questions about how do they make decisions? Who makes decisions? Um, you know, how do networks operate? All, all these are really wide open uh, for for discussion. So I, I just I, say that as a yeah. By the way, just just so you know, we we butter up well on the Pacific Century. I mean, <laughs> I not that you don't that. deserve it, but I, I just want yeah. you to know you're in good company. We've buttered up a lot of folks, and well, it's it's, to do it's so. given me the confidence to to answer your next question, which I appreciate. So, just r- real quickly, the the uh, uh, we talk about a plenum. What we're talking about is a a plenary session um, under the 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 charter of the constitution of the communist party of china which you can get online to read and it is where 92 percent of my knowledge of uh, the ccp comes from um th- there are some uh, strict guidelines about how the party should operate and one of them is um, every year the central committee of the communist party of china has to have a full session a, a plenary session um, and those plenary sessions are bookended by a party congress so Party congresses occur once every five years. That's the big, at, at the hierarchy of Communist Party meetings, um, it is the Party Congress. That's where you usually see leadership transitions occur. Um, we are now at the in, within the 19th Party Congress uh, of the Central Committee. Um, uh, party Congress is dating all the way back to the founding of the CCP. This is the 19th. The last there, one being in 2017. The last one being so in 2017, which is where the 19th Party Congress era began. And, a, and, a, and a, when they say a 19th Party Congress, that means it, it runs for five years. And in 2022, we'll have the 20th Party Congress. Just as a, as a quick note, um, Party Congresses were held very irregularly during the Mao era. And, and as part of this rebuilding process, when Deng Xiaoping came to power in the late 1970s, one of the things he helped do is standardize process. So moving to much more regular occurrence of, of party congresses uh, so that there was some predictability here in leadership turnover and policymaking. Um, so within those five years that a, a party congress is held, a, a plenum has to be held at least once a year. Oftentimes they're held twice a year, but at a minimum once a year. And to your good, astute question on uh, what's the difference between a fifth and a fourth plenum, um, fourth plenum, of course, held in the fall of of last year. Um, Starting again with the Dung era, each plenum, each numbered plenum began to have a kind of a theme or a flavor. This is not fixed in any party guideline, but it's emerged as a norm. The fifth plenum uh, uh, since the mid-1990s has focused on the reviewing the progress of a previous five-year plan and looking to um, uh, discuss and review, revise the upcoming uh, five-year plan. So right now we're seeing the end of the 13th five-year plan this year and what was on the docket for discussion starting on the 26th of October and wrapping up today was what's in this upcoming uh, 14th five-year plan. Just really quickly, Third plenums have often been the big reform plenums. Um, those are we used to get real excited about those. And again, the, the third plenum of the 
18th Party Congress in 2013 is where we saw this uh, this uh, announcement that the market was going to play a decisive role in allocating resources. This was early Xi Jinping era, got everyone all excited. Um, fourth plenum usually focuses on party governance. Um, so I won't, I won't go through all, all seven and eight uh, uh, plenums, but, but uh, to just make that point that these are typically uh, thematic. Uh, so just to discuss what we saw today in the final announcement. So again, this wrapped up the, the, the fifth plenum. There was a big communique that, that came out. Um, we should be on the lookout for in the next couple of days. Uh, certainly by the time folks listen to this, it will already be out a, a fuller document laying out more about what will be in the 14th five-year plan. But, but just to highlight what was in this communique today, for me, what comes out of this is really Beijing's vision for the international order. If you read not very finely between the lines, it's pretty explicit. There is an articulation that Beijing is entering a period of pronounced and increased volatility in the international environment, one where it sees necessity in what it calls self-reliance, uh, self-sufficiency, essentially a, it's a decoupling vision or, or a sort of a, a, a half decoupling vision. Um, this is one where um, it, it diagnoses a shift in the international uh, balance of power. Um, and so I think if we're trying to get a strategic window into how's Beijing looking at the future of U.S.-China relations, the communique is a good place to start. And just one final uh, thought that, that I think is telling, you'll notice that the communique and this plenum were held before the U.S. election. And I think that's interesting because it indicates Beijing's not waiting around to see who wins next week. Beijing really has decided on what the future looks like, and it will be one typified, I think, by uh, geopolitical competition and rivalry. And so irrespective to Beijing of who's coming into office in January next year, whether that's Trump administration 2.0 or Biden administration, Beijing is really on the balls of its feet and is plowing ahead with its vision for what the future should look like. So is this, is this um, the communique that's talking about uh, a, a period of instability or uh, certainly greater competition, as you put it? First, is, is this something new in the rhetoric uh, of of the party uh, is are we seeing a change or has it been a slow ramping up? Where where are we? Should we be worried because this is a complete turnaround from what they've been saying before? Yeah, I, I, that's interesting. So as a um, when you read some of these these bigger pronouncements or documents, one operative framework which has been in existence really for for going on twenty years now has been this idea that China is in a window of strategic opportunity. Um, that that phrase, or it's called a TIFA, is still um, is still um, in play today. So Beijing is still assessing essentially that, starting around the, the early two thousands, we'd entered into this window of opportunity, and yet. Um, there is another phrase which Xi Jinping has introduced uh, over the past couple of years, which says China is also experiencing quote changes unseen in a hundred years, right? So they are saying. The, the opportunity is good for us, but we're seeing new challenges and new opportunities uh, emerge. And, and one final phrase which came out in the communique today, which I think is important, is they talked about, quote, profound adjustments in the international balance of power. That phrase was first used in 2017, but after 2018, you began to see it linked to uh, the post-global financial crisis period. And this fits in with a pattern of Beijing's assessment is it is a rising power. It is rising in terms of what China calls com composite national power. 
and the United States, it sees as a declining power. Uh, it, it sees this, the, the global financial crisis really being the first real important cracks in the foundation. But I think subsequent events have confirmed, for Beijing at least, um, that the United States is, is declining in, in composite national power. And really, we're seeing sort of the, um, the winds begin to shift to the east, as they used to say. Um, how, uh, first of all, should we believe this in the sense that do they really believe this? Is this just, is this just PR? Is it, is it boilerplate? Do they actually believe it? And um, secondly, look, they've had uh, a, a significant macroeconomic slowdown over the past uh, half decade, if not longer. Um, capital flight, uh, real questions about uh, real GDP growth, uh, especially absent government spending uh, and the like. Um, why do they still believe, if they do, that they're a rising power uh, and we're a declining power? Um, do, do they see themselves as a moderating power? So first, do they actually believe this stuff? Uh, and, and therefore, we need to understand our policy formulation within the context that they actually believe this and therefore may act upon this. And secondly, how, how do they, you know, in a sense, how do they justify that, that, uh, that, that, conclusion given the, the problems we're seeing in the, the Chinese economy? Those are two really excellent questions. I think especially the second one is important for us as Americans to, to wade through. And maybe just as a framing comment, I think one of the problems with how we've been approaching China in the post-Mao period is we've really just alternated between two poles. One is, you know, collapsism, which is China is always on the verge of collapse. Again, we've predicted, you know, 15 of the last zero collapses of the Communist Party. Uh, you know, looking forward in time, you know, and you can go back right now because they've all been FOIA'd. If you go on the CIA website, you can read a lot of the intelligence estimates from the 1980s leading up to uh, and, and through the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre. It's really interesting to see how operative a Cold War framework was. And of course, imagine if you were looking at the Communist Party in 1989, right after the Tiananmen Square massacre, and you're seeing the, the collapse of the Soviet Union all around you, it, it certainly would have made sense that you're seeing the end days of, of Leninist parties. But again, I think we've, um, we, we've clearly been misdiagnosing or overlooking the elements of resiliency within the party state or put another way, there's two sides of the ledger. We've really only been looking at the risk side of the ledger and hadn't quite accurately calibrated what, what the sources of, of resiliency were. Um, do they really believe this? I, I think that's an interesting question, and I think it's, it's um, maybe unhelpfully yes and no. Um, no in the sense that I think they clearly understand that there's a bit of a grifter confidence game going on right now, and that narrative power is extraordinarily important. And this is one, by the way, I think there's a a crucial lesson for the United States. Um, we have really lost our mojo when it comes to articulating a sense of of strength and pride in the foundation foundational elements of our of our political system. Um, whereas China has, I think, for for reasons of understanding that you can fake it until you make it. Um, if you continue to push forward with the narrative of we're on the ascendancy, the sun is sun is rising in the east. Um, that that begins to get some traction, I think, especially in an environment of declining indigenous belief in the inherent goodness of democracy and, and liberal political systems. So, so that's the no, I don't think they necessarily totally believe it. Yes, I think they do believe it in the sense that I don't think it takes a huge stretch of imagination to look at the, the 2008 period until today 
and to see the ability of the Chinese system to weather and withstand some pretty significant shocks. And I'll name two. One is the global financial crisis. We're very focused on the fact that they ramped up debt in response to the global financial crisis. That ain't how they die. That's not how they look back at it. They look back and say, compared to the alternatives, that wasn't that bad, right? We, we live to fight another day. And crucially, it was because of our state-owned economy that we were able to sort of pick up the phone and begin digging ditches and laying road on day two, where a decentralized market-based system is not able to have that level of responsiveness. And second is I'll say, you know, COVID-19 has, I think, proven for the leadership that its system um, has a resiliency and adaptability that democratic systems don't. And here, I think our narrative is of failure, of cover-up, and, and I don't disagree with important elements of those, but I do think, again, if we're trying to get in the heads of Beijing strategic thinkers, in, in January this year, I think a lot of us analysts were looking at China and saying, this is government failure 101. The Chinese party has just absolutely messed this up. Some were even speculating, is Xi Jinping on the ropes? Is this the final straw? And look where he is now. Um, China, I think, speaks with an organic level of confidence about the ability of their system to battle and contain the, the coronavirus. And what they say is, look across the ocean and look at the United States. I'm not trying to get into a partisan thing here about how we handled it just in terms of their own narrative. I think they can say with, a, um, with some objective uh, evidence that their system kind of weathered this better than ours did. And so, yes, I think they have some... Uh, some important level of, of organic belief that, look, we're not the Soviet Union. You know, this was not our Chernobyl moment. In fact, um, this has shown how uh, deep, deep interlinkages of the Communist Party all throughout society give us a, an adaptability and a responsiveness, again, that democratic institutions don't. And I think we've really got to um, take that on the chin and begin thinking about what do we do to respond and adapt to that that sort of much more organically confident Chinese political system. Well, that that's a fascinating point, uh, an organically confident Chinese political system. Um, and very much, I think, as we try to remind ourselves when we, we talk about this, for those who, uh, you know, came of age, let's say in the 80s or, or even 90s, this is a very different China in terms of the the worldview and the mindset, these are not Chinese looking out, whether it's elite or 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 students or or workers that are looking out and seeing an America that is a generation ahead economically. Now, and it, obviously, certain elements of society have not kept up, but this is this is very different, and and it's a hard, it's it's, a, it's sort of a hard mental leap, I think, for a lot of us to take. But I, I want to go back for a second to something you said that was very interesting, uh, and it was the buzzword that we hear here to use our homonyms that we hear over here in the United States, decoupling. Uh, the argument uh, that has been made, of course, is that it was the Trump administration that wanted to decouple, that it was trying to decouple through the trade war, if anyone remembers that, before the Wuhan outbreak and then the COVID pandemic around the world. Um, it, it was our fault. And then, and then it became part of the coronavirus story that... Well, we can no longer, and certainly something I've talked about, you know, we can no longer leave our supply chains at risk, uh, whether it's medical supplies or, or pharmaceuticals or, or rare earths or the like. But you said it was the Chinese wanting to decouple or partially decouple. Can you talk a little bit about what, what are you saying from the Chinese side? 
Yeah, and by the way, you, you just prompted me. Um, I, I should have made um, added the point that one of the reasons, you mentioned the Wuhan outbreak, one of the reasons why Beijing will never allow a objective investigation of the origins of coronavirus is um, to do so would, and to find where patient zero would, would undermine this new narrative of sort of uber governance competence. Um, and I think in many ways, if the old legitimating narrative of the Communist Party was 8% growth, we, you know, we deliver the goods, the, the shifting narrative, and I've noticed it really over the past year has been our governance system is more capable than alternatives. And I think that's been an interesting shift, but it shows you where their sensitivities are, are, are going to be on this. Um, on the issue of decoupling, yeah, this is one where, unfortunately, partisan political discussion in the United States here has just made this topic so confused and, and fraught. Um, I mean, just a starting point is um, decoupling is a verb, it's not a noun, in the sense that decoupling is a process, it's a movement along a spectrum, not a binary state. We, we've never been at either end of decoupling. Maybe North Korea is at one end of, of, of decoupling in, in autarky, uh, and maybe previously, 10 or 15 years ago, you had places like you know, Hong Kong or New Zealand that were at the other end of, of extraordinary integration and trade exposure. But we've always been somewhere on the, on the um, on the spectrum. And really what decoupling is about is it's kind of deglobalization 2.0. And the way I see it is, and I gotta, I'm taking off my normative hat, I have my own beliefs on how integrated we should be, but just analytically, um, 2016 was clearly an inflection year where the tensions that had been building up from the, the trade agreements of the 1990s, NAFTA, uh, WTO, global financial crisis, were clearly really beginning to, to wind up and they slipped or they let loose in 2016. And we had a sort of a backlash against the type of globalization that we had had starting in the mid 1990s. Um, and so um, for the United States and Western economies, it began to be this sort of indigenous or populist pushback. And so it was always framed that it was the sort of Trump administration that was pushing decoupling. I think for folks who had been following China's industrial policy for a little bit longer though, it was understood that really this idea of integration comes with national security risks and therefore we need to hedge uh, has, has been within the Chinese discourse for a very, very long time. Indeed, you know, Mao Zedong has been talking about self-reliance going back to the 1950s, but it was really in the, the 2000s with ideas about indigenous innovation where China was saying, look, we can't rely on foreigners to do everything. We've got to be onshoring, insourcing um, our own um, production capacity, and that will mean some level of deintegration with the global economy. Maybe that's blocking off market access for foreign companies to be, to be coming in. Maybe that's finding ways to steal IP. So instead of buying from abroad, we can be onshoring that and, and sourcing that indigenously. And so I think really we saw Beijing doing it under the cover and a bit more sophistication, um, um, you know, made in China 2025, which came out in 2015, articulating dominance in some core industries, had a heavy component of what I'll call broadly indigenous innovation. Um, so I think really what happened in 2016, 27, 2018 is, is almost a convergence in many ways of how China and many industrialized developed economies were saying the, the previous level of integration we had produced some unnecessary or untenable national security exposures. One, one other exposure I should mention is human rights exposure. It's not just national security concerns over integration with China. It is as much now 
Um, should you be sourcing products when you can't tell if they're coming from slave labor or forced labor out in Xinjiang? So we've not only got national security concerns propelling forward deglobalization or decoupling, but also you know, hum human rights and, and values concerns. So my thought on decoupling is it's really not a question of if I think it's happening and it's going to be a longer term trend, it's a renegotiation of what the status quo of integration looks like. And, and, and this is one I think the question is, and this is where we have policy choices, where are we going to see decoupling? How much decoupling? And then final thought, just this is where I'm a bit in the middle of decoupling. I, I, I think of myself as an integrationist in many ways. I think we've got to start thinking through as we decouple, what are the full costs of, of decoupling both ways um, and, and make decisions about where, how we want to integrate um, with, with China. And, and I think we just haven't quite emerged onto that full mature discussion, partly because the trade war and partisanship was just poisoning any kind of real rational discussion on, you know, it's a political choice how integrated we want to be with, with China. I think that is a far more fascinating and interesting uh, conversation uh, and view of what's going on than what we normally get. And, and I think that's right. I think, you know, for those of our listeners who are involved in business, they are already aware of this. I think the people on the political side have not been. Uh, most of the policy side hasn't been. As you said, it was all this, and I'm, again, this is not, uh, this is not meant to, um, to uh, defend the Trump administration. Uh, th this is a neutral conversation, but it was all reporting on the American side about how the Americans were going to crash the world economy, global economy, because they wanted to decouple. But this was happening on the Chinese side. Uh, and we sat there on, on the Asian studies side for years talking about indigenous innovation made in China 2025 and never made the argument that this is decoupling. That's exactly what they want to do up to a degree, whatever that degree may be. And it would have been a far more fruitful conversation than, well, it's the Americans who are walking away from globalization when it was exactly a, a much more nuanced position, I would argue, on, on both sides. Where I'd like to take that, though, if we can, is something you had mentioned to me before. Now, in order for China to be able to do this, um, for, for first of all, for the government to make it a, a policy that is in in fact not going to crash their economy, right? Um, you have to have a, a certain level of confidence or a great level of confidence in your economic system, its ability to innovate, adapt, expand, so on and so forth, from what you are no longer going to be, in your view, vulnerable from in the in the global economy. Um, let me read you a quote from a piece by Ray Dalio, the, the um, head of Bridgewater, uh, the big hedge fund that came out uh, just a few days ago in the Financial Times uh, that may give a clue as to the type of economy that um, China is building, how Dalio sees it, and then I, and then I know you're working on it. So we will uh, get to, uh, I'd like to get your assessment of it. Here's the quote. Whatever criticisms you may have about Chinese state capitalism, you cannot say it hasn't worked, even if you strongly disagree with how Beijing has done it, end quote. So what is state capitalism? What are we talking about when we're talking about this plan of uh, the party to decouple to some degree from the global economy, from the United States or, or the industrialized West, is it successful? Uh, does Ray Dalio have it right? And how do we understand what this means for going forward with policy towards China? Yeah, that, that's an interesting 
quote and one where really the nub of it is def is defining what success means here. Um, because I'm going to argue both ways. I'm going to argue China's um, political economy and its state capitalist system, we can talk about what that is, has both been remarkably successful and very unsuccessful, depending on the, depending on the way that you're, you're looking at this. I think just one place to start is, um, and, and I recommend everyone who, who, who's nerdy on this stuff, there's an absolutely fantastic paper written by Mark Wu of, of Harvard Law School called The China Inc. Challenge to the WTO, which came out in 2016 and made a, a, an argument which I think we can scale out and, and um, really should be how we're thinking about this challenge of how do we have a globally integrated economy when you have this iteration of China's political system. Um, basically made the argument that we have a whole bunch of regulatory bodies and agencies which operate under the assumption that your economy is like our economy. In other words, you have a delineation that's fairly coherent between public and private, state and non-state. China has none of that. Um, China's system is sui generis in a way. I mean, we've had Leninist states before, but we've never had them this complex and integrated as China. It's, we've never had the kind of Soviet Union on economic financial steroids that was investing in Dayton, Ohio, um, you know, that was, was um, you know, had companies that are, that are really at the frontier edge of emergent technologies that is so deeply ingrained in international capital markets. And yet, has such an all-encompassing um, amorphous party-state structure that operates in real formal ways that we can quantify and count, and really informal ways that are extraordinarily difficult to put your finger on. You know, things like the United Front, you know, United Front Work or the United Front Work Department. Um, United Front is is just this amorphous shadow boxing thing that we know is there, but it's really hard to sort of put your finger on it. And so I th I think that's in many ways kind of the the the, the Chinese economic model challenge to, I hate using the word the West, but I'll call sort of advanced market-based, law-based economic systems. And so when, when someone says that the state capitalist system works, I think when many is, well, yeah, that, that's right from a strategic perspective in the sense that, you know, from really the mid-1990s, when China began to reform and restructure its state-owned enterprises, it created some big national champions. And what it said to those national champions is, domestically, we want you to control what Lenin called the commanding heights, the, the, the upstream of upstreams, the big strategic sectors, you know, telecommunications, banking, transportation. Basically, if you control the upstream, you control the downstream. And then they said, and now go out and gain access to those internationally. So while we in DC are fixated on TikTok, um, you know, there's a hundred SOEs that, that folks don't know the name of that are out doing some pretty extraordinary things in terms of, you know, M&A activity, investments, operations in strategically significant industries, you know, port infrastructure, you know, finance, uh, fintech. And so um, in that sense, when Dalios, if what he means by successful is strategically speaking, China has been able to take its, its political system, its SOEs, its hybrid public-private, you know, murky gray zone companies that clearly aren't, aren't our definition of private, but, but get to call themselves private and sort of integrate themselves into capital markets, equity markets, gain access to, to talent, technology, resources. I'd say it's been pretty darn successful. 
Um, and part of that is a lack of, of strategic focus on our point, our part. Part of it is a um, follow the shiny object. You know, we've got a lot of oxygen spent on Huawei. We've got a lot of oxygen spent on TikTok. What about state grid? What about Costco shipping? What about China merchants? Um, you know, these are, you know, these are companies that don't get a lot of, of scrutiny. I'll asterisk that just to say that <clears throat> recently the Trump administration, but DOD has really been um, pointing a finger at some of these, at some of these SOEs. So, so in that sense, um, uh, successful. Unsuccessful in the sense that if we're thinking about um, the, the China entering into an environment where capital is going to be scarce, and again, I think we're in that environment now. It's growing. It's going to grow two percent this year. Um, China has, I think, four or five years ago, in the heady days of outbound investment, you know, was was buying your your local bowling alley. It was you know investing in AMC. It was you know buying hotels, and, and that model clearly was extravagant. And so um, China is not going to have access to infinite capital forever. And China, in that sense, is very good at making um, um, burning uh, capital, but in order to gain uh, control of strategic resources, it's not very good at using scarce, efficient capital uh, to gain access to strategic resources. And I think that's where the model, we have to really think about how much gas is left in, the, in, that, in that tank and, and uh, react smartly. So this is why the line I use is, you know, China's not 10 feet tall, it's not two feet tall, it's six foot nine. Um, you know, it has some pretty significant weaknesses and so does its economic model, but it's big enough that you don't want to necessarily uh, pick a fight or you got to bring your best game. So can you talk a little bit more then about the concept of state capitalism, right? I think a lot of us here still um, operate on the idea that it's sort of the Wild West economically over in China, that this is the China we all thought we were going to get uh, back in the 1980s and early 1990s. Anything goes. Um, you talked about a China on the cutting edge of emergent technologies, of being on the head of fintech, uh, of, of uh, the, the really fascinating thing, people couldn't see me, I was shaking my head because I didn't know about any of these, all of these small uh, corporations or small SOEs that you were talking about, the names that you were throwing out, things I had never even heard of that are playing important roles in port infrastructure and other things like that. How do we understand state capitalism? Uh, and, you know, from the American perspective, we really think that, you know, the, the, the free market is, well, I mean, there's a strong segment that thinks that the free market is really the most efficient and effective way to go. Um, how do we get our heads around what state capitalism is in uh, and and why that is a in, from the Chinese perspective, it's a strength rather than a weakness. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and again, one where all these discussions on China are often plagued by vocabulary. You know, we, we where, where um, again some sui generis, um, um, I think, realities in China really challenge how we think about things. You know, broadly speaking, state capitalism is not necessarily unique. Uh, Singapore has a state capitalist system. It's got SOEs. Brazil has a state capitalist system, right? So usually when we're talking about state capitalism, we're talking about sort of a heavy role for the government in the state operating through commercial means or commercial enterprises um, with, with a high degree of ownership or control over the sort of the, the means of production. Um, now, there's varying degrees of that, and it operates on, on, a, on a spectrum, but that's not a very unique model. Indeed, most of, you know, Nisha, this is your area, but, you know, Japan, South Korea, um, we saw the Koretsu, we saw the Chabel, you know, we've seen these sorts of state capitalist systems before, and indeed, 
there's um, we've we've dealt with these challenges uh, before of, of state capitalism. And that's where I think the term, you know, Mark Woon is good paper that I mentioned earlier, pushes back against using this. Some people have instead opted for the term China Inc., of course, building on the Japan Inc., but as a way to indicate that we have a, a different system operating here that, that's quite unique. In terms of my kind of essential features of China system, um, I think we're clearly pulling over some of the Japanese, um, Korean um, examples. We're, we're talking mostly about conglomerates, right? So this is something the United States has moved away from conglomerates <clears throat> structure where you would have, you know, a central holding company or firm or Yokretsu, you maybe have a bank and then a network of hundreds, thousands of subsidiaries sprawling across a number of disparate in industries. The United States moved away from that. Um, that's very much at the center of the Chinese state capitalist model or the China, the China Inc. model. Um, I think it's a, the, the state capitalism China is a heavy, heavy reliance on SOEs, both for strategic and also ideological reasons. Uh, if you read the Communist Party Constitution, it still says that uh, state control over the means of production will remain dominant. Um, so SOEs are really baked into the system of China. But I think the real unique element of China's state capitalist or this China Inc. system is the role of the Communist Party. Um, this was not present in Japan. This was not present in South Korea or any other type of East Asian state capitalism. There's nothing like this in, in, in Brazil or, or other Latin American systems that, that operate off uh, of state capitalism. Um, so anyway, so I think it's, it's really comes down to where we started this discussion of um, the Communist Party and how it integrates and grafts itself onto the state capitalist system is really what makes this unique. Final point I would say is distinguishing factors of China's system is scale. Um, we've just never seen this scale of resources brought to bear on uh, the international economy. And that's where, you know, Japan, Korea um, um, have never been able to have a comparison uh, with, with China. Really no, no system has. I think it's a great point. It's it's one that, um, as a historian, you know, who started off looking at Japan, uh, I've become more sensitive to because a lot of people, and in fact, I would say it uh, a lot of times was, um, well, look, um, uh, you know, we went through this this story where we talk about the expectations for China with Japan before, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Japan was going to take over the world. Uh, and so my point was to bring in a, you know, a note of caution to say things don't always turn out the way you anticipate. But the more I would say that, the more I would become aware of, of the differences, you know, and, and it is the scale is massive. And China is a more complete player than Japan ever was. It has a military that Japan never had. It has political influence that Japan never had. Um, the, the scale inter it had a, I think it has a, uh, um, uh, a public media presence, an international media presence Japan never had. And then scale, you know, comes in. You know, Japan had, at most, I think it was 50, 40, 50,000 students a year in the United States, which is a lot for Japan. You know, China has 300,000. So again, I think that's that's an important point to bring out. So to um, wrap up, I mean, there's been so much here. I, I think people have to go look at the Mark Wu paper that you mentioned. Uh, they should be looking at the communique from the plenum. Um, they should obviously be picking up, you know, your book on the Red Guards. There's there's so much here that, that goes deep into political psychology, political practice. Um, but everyone wants to look ahead, right? So uh, the plenum's winding up. Um, 
there will be another party Congress in 2022. So we've got basically one more year of, of, of prep. Um, we're going to have a new administration, even if President Trump is reelected, there will probably be a, an almost completely new cast of characters. Um, so what, what should we expect going forward? What do we expect, not from the American side, from the Chinese side that you see, uh, given what you've read in the communique, what you've looked at through the plenum, um, how do we prepare ourselves for that next year or so? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, just one other thing to add to the political calendar. Next year, July 1st, is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China. Um, that'll not only be the birthday of birthdays as a political event, but for Xi Jinping, this will be the kind of first event of him really looking forward to run for re-election and an unprecedented uh, norm-busting third term as general secretary, president, and, and head of the CMC, which he's undoubted to take uh, at the 20th Party Congress. The FDR of China. Exactly. The, the FDR of China. third term. Um, so I think just a... One of the things that we've probably done a bit too much of is expect China to simply be reactive to whatever the United States does. And I think just looking over the past couple of years, I'm seeing a, a country under this leadership of the Xi administration, which is very much tempo setting more than the United States is. Um, and so China really is doing its own thing in many ways. Of course, it's reactive to you know, the United States sends a cabinet official to Taiwan. Um, you know, so, so it's not that the United States doesn't matter. But first of all, most of China's efforts are focused on domestic issues, then regional issues, um, and, and then the United States. And so I think China's going to continue to plow ahead on a, a recalibrated Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I think China is going to continue to try and make uh, to push out, um, I think, some of its more aggressive sort of behavior in uh, South China Sea, East China Sea. Um, I think it's going to continue to have uh, pretty significant troubles with some of its neighbors like India. Um, and I think it just in terms of the, the for, for folks who are, you know, invested in China, I think really looking at this next iteration of China's development model, which is, which is now really going to move away from the story that we saw operative for the better part of 20 years, and is really going to be focused on, we're in a tech race. And um, China has, the, I think, the determination and the will to really drive resources into scaling up its tech ambitions. And that's when I don't think goes away, that competition doesn't go away with a Biden administration or, or, a, or a Trump too. And Beijing certainly doesn't see it, it going away. Final thought is, I, I think we do have to be prepared that we now have a lot of uh, actual and potential flashpoints in the relationship. And um, the trust or the distrust that is now, uh, I think, developed between the two doesn't go away in January. And so we're kind of one mistake away. We're an EP3 spy plane incident away from uh, something more than a Cold War. And again, in 2001, when you had the EP3 spy plane incident, the reason we got over that is China wanted to get into the WTO. We had a reason. Both sides had a reason to negotiate away from that. D does Xi Jinping strike you as the sort of leader who's going who's gonna to back down? Does Trump? Um, so I think we got to prepare that this is a cold war, but that, that, that is not, uh, that does not mean it will always stay that way. So to use the words of the man who may be the next president of the United States, gird your loins. <laughs> malarkey. Well, well, they're, they're <laughs> hoping we're nothing but malarkey, but gird your loins. We are in yeah. for a long struggle. I think your take on, um, this different development model is, is really maybe, maybe the big takeaway here that it really is a tech 
oriented competition. It's something that um, we need to get better at. We're obviously a leader in many ways, but uh, we also have been uh, complacent, uh, complacent in terms of developing our own homegrown talent on math and science. Um, you know, uh, the part of the year that I get to spend out in Silicon Valley, you know, you see that that divide between uh, the tech folks and the policymakers, their perceptions of what is national security and national threat, um, and and where we go forward. They're very happy to be to be globalized and international, and you look at it back here in D.C., and it's very much a question of securing the nation state. So th- these are debates that we have to have at home in order to be able to compete effectively abroad. Um, well, Jude, this has been absolutely fascinating. As I said, it was, I think, a masterclass on Chinese politics. Um, there's so much more to discuss. Um, the book, again, uh, that came out last year, China's New Red Guards, please do pick it up. Uh, you can follow Jude at CSIS uh, and all of the great work he is doing. So thank you so much, and I hope you will join us again on the Pacific Century. Thank you, Misha. All right. On behalf of John Yu, my croissant searching partner, who will be back next next time, uh, this is Michael Oslin from the Hoover Institution. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.